Welcome to The Lounge, where I, Amina Hughes, talk to people in the music, film and other creative industries about the essence of their craft. I'm honoured to have two very special guests with me on this episode of The Lounge, screen producers Tanya Chambers and Kylie Dufresne. Tanya is a member of the Australian Academy of Cinema and Television Arts, an honorary life member of Women in Film and Television and a Dame Changer. She has served on several boards and councils, including Screen Producers Australia, the Screen West Industry Advisory Group, Perth Festival and Arts Law Centre. Now a producer and executive producer at Feisty Dame Productions, her credits include children's television series Itch, Feature Kill Me Three Times starring Simon Pegg and countless festival shorts. In 2016, Tanya was awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia for her service to the arts and to film and television. Kylie is a multi-award winning film and television producer, a partner at Goalpost Pictures and a Screen West board member. Her credits include The Sapphires, Clever Man for ABC TV, Sundance TV, BBC Three and TV New Zealand, the BAFTA-nominated adaptation of Tim Winton's Lockie Leonard, the Helen Reddy biopic I Am Woman, and Blumhouse and Universal's The Invisible Man, starring Elizabeth Moss, so far grossing almost $131 million US dollars. Tanya and Kylie, welcome. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. So I want to ask you both about pathways to producing. Uh, Tanya, you came from a law background and through having served on many film and festival boards. Kylie, you've worked your way up through a, within a production company as a production secretary, associate producer, co-producer, and now you're a producer and executive producer with PGA recognition. Is there a pathway to producing that you would recommend for our emerging producers out there? <laughs> Um, look, I think it's it's a really interesting um, question because there is no um, no one answer. I mean, if you look at even just between Tanya and I, we've had completely different pathways to producing, and that is only two of multiple ways that that um, that people kind of come up. Whether it's through production, it can be through um, development, it can be through law, it can be you know such a variety of ways. Um, so I mean, I think the big thing, if I just kind of look back at my career, that I felt is so important uh, when you're learning to be a producer, when you are taking those first steps, is is being able to kind of uh, work or uh, assist alongside an experienced producer. I mean, that was certainly my, um, you know, the way that I kind of uh, learned the, the craft um, uh, through Rosemary Blight, who I originally started as her assistant when I was 19, and now we're business partners. And I think, um, you know, that I think is an incredibly important part of the, you know, it's about the learning, it's about the watching, it's about the listening, about the absorbing of seeing someone else do it um that would be my kind of my my one thing is you know you have to kind of eventually take your own steps and do short films or music videos or documentaries or whatever are those steps before you take on you know particularly with drama a feature film you know or a television series which are kind of you know generally require a certain amount of experience but alongside that the mentoring i think with 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 a producer is so key to whatever pathway uh, you take to get there. Yeah, I have to agree with that. I've had an unusual um, pathway to producing because I became a producer and set up my own production company at age 50. 
So that gives hope mm -hmm. from a lot of people that you can have multiple careers in many different directions. Um, I had always had a love for the arts. I, my background was really French and German literature and language and theatre, and I came to film and TV very late. I did law as my other degree, and I must say I have never, ever stopped using that. Every single day we use contractual and intellectual property and employment law and all sorts of things. Um, so I was very pleased to have that background with my particular pathway. But I ended up um, working in the industry after finishing my law degree. Um, I ended up going into the ABC as an in-house lawyer and then through various companies and then eventually through Screen New South Wales and Screen West before that as CEO. But essentially when I decided that I wanted to produce, even though I had, you know, by then about 20 years industry experience knowing um, how the industry operated in a different way, I decided again to surround myself with people who had greater experience than I did at producing. So my two feature films that I did, Kill Me Three Times and A Few Less Men, were with Lawrence Malkin and Cher Stallings, both of whom had at least seven feature films behind them as producers, including Death at a Funeral. Um, and so that gave me the opportunity really to be beside them with my own skill set, my own contribution. Um, but I actually had, you know, a learning curve like this <laughs> to actually experience what it was from, from the beginning um, of, well, not the beginning of development because they had projects that they'd already worked on, but from the process of getting development finance together right through bringing a creative team together, ultimately to getting the full production finance together getting to work with the crew and the selection there and then right through the experience of the, the shoot through to delivery to festivals to then looking after it for the last, God, seven or eight years, isn't it, Kylie, at least, that you're looking after every project afterwards. Um, I decided to surround myself with people who knew more than I did so I could learn as much as I could from them. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I can't remember who said, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. It's really important to um, surround yourself with a really good team and with mentors. Absolutely. Um, I have a question for our emerging directors. What is it that you look for in a producer-director relationship? Well, I always say that it's like a marriage without the intimate relations, <laughs> mostly. I mean, it really, it really is. Um, I think it, First and foremost, there has to be trust there um, on both sides. Um, if, if there's not that, then it's, it's, in my experience, it's a relationship that will never work. Um, I think the director has to trust that, pro that the producer is in their camp um, and, and understands the project as creatively and deeply as they do. Um, and... Uh, and I guess when you, as a producer, are trying to shepherd something through, whether it's development or when you're in the, the hotbed of production, that if there is that trust there and, and you have to kind of pivot or move or change things, that the director understands that you only do that when it's absolutely necessary because as a producer, you still have the creative first and foremost. Um, so it kind of really comes back to trust, I think, um, as, a, as the first thing. Um, and an openness. I mean, I, I like to work with directors in a very open way and um, be honest about what's going on as much as possible. I mean, I think as a producer, you can't tell directors everything because 
you know, what we do is mostly spend all day putting out fires, you know, <laughs> consistently, particularly <laughs> in production. And, uh, and if you told a director every fire, they might not get off the floor. <laughs> so you have to choose um, what are the fires that you reveal um, uh, and when you reveal them. Um, so, yeah, I think um, trust and an openness of conversation and kind of really feeling like you're both moving in the same direction and are making the same film or the make, making the same show. Um, I think one thing, you know, where for me personally, where it doesn't go well is where there's an assumption that as a producer, you only care about the bottom line. You know, you only care about the budget. Um, as soon as that happens, um, there's a really major problem, I think, in that trust relationship and actually ends up kind of adversely affecting what you see on screen. Mm -hmm. I, I can't stand the us and them side of it and I don't like that on in production either where you can so easily develop this notion of there's the, you know, the producers or the production office and the rest of us and I will do everything I can to select people who don't have that attitude and will go the extra mile. Um, for me with the director, that's a, a very valuable thing, as you're saying, Kylie, and respect for the producer's role and the fact that we do understand the director's creativity and direction, absolutely. It's a challenging one for new relationships with directors. So the notion or, or new directors, um, because quite often, I've unfortunately, I've come across experiences um, recently where people coming out of film schools or otherwise believe a producer is just an extra set of eyes, that it's actually all about the director and that the director ultimately, um, you know, believe they, some believe they have final cuts, some believe they have the right to decide which brushes you see, etc. And that type of unprofessional approach to the industry and the way the role is, is something that we need to get over. So I need to have somebody who actually has spent the time um, becoming streetwise, finding out about what the role of a director is, what the relationship is with producers, and builds that relationship with me over time. Um, as Kylie says, it's, you know, fundamentally about trust. So we need to know that we're going to spend many, many hours and <laughs> years together. And so we really need to get to know each other and be able to get on with each other. Yeah, it's really important to work as a team, isn't it? Because a lot of producers um, as well are very interested in the creative side and creative producing and, and as much invested in that aspect of the, of the project as the director is. So it is really important to, to work as a team. Yeah. Well, exactly. And I think there's a lot of um, projects that originate creatively with producers. Um, the series that I'm doing now, I'm working with Corrie Chen, who's an incredible director. Um, so um, collaborative and really, really enjoying working with her. Um, but it's a project that actually originated um, with, with me and even before there was a writer on board. So I think there's a you know, sometimes a writer brings you a project or sometimes a director brings you a project, but more and more, particularly with creative producers, and really I don't, I don't know any other kind of producer, you know, all the producers that within our company and that we're friends with and our peers are all creative producers. Um, and we originate projects ourselves sometimes for many years before the kind of collective team comes on board. So I think um, thinking that we're just going to kind of, stand aside um, that we don't want to 
you know, uh, have a seat at the table um, is, is, is not really how most, most creative producers in Australia work. It doesn't at all mean that we don't respect and actually know that the director has to take a creative control at a certain point and it has to be their vision and you're there, but you're there with them and they want you there with them as well. Uh, yeah. And I wouldn't um, respect for anything in the world. <laughs> I definitely respect the skill set and the learning and the experience and um, insights that a director has. And that's where I love, I love the notion of our particular choice of art form and creativity is one of collaboration. Yeah, it's actually a nice um, segue into my next question. This this podcast is quite centred around uh, discovering the essence of a person's craft and, and what drives you to do what you do. So I wanted to ask both of you, what is it that draws you to a particular project? I think you get a certain, you get a certain excitement about a project. I think it's hard to describe that you'll get something that's a certain kind of zing um, that makes you curious about it. And then I kind of go through a, a more rational kind of process where almost immediately I'm thinking about who is the audience? Who's the audience for what this is? Or, and in what format can this story be told? Because, of course, nearly every story can be told um, as, a, as a, a feature length, as a, you know, a, a mini-series or as a documentary. There's many different ways. It can be a novel and it can be... You know, it can be a short story. Um, and so why this story and in which format and why now and for whom is very, very important to me, as well as um, without any doubt, it's beyond the story, it's the creative team around it. So I can have the best story in the world, but if I don't believe the creative team is necessarily the right one or I can't find a way of financing that, that's another thing. But it starts very much for me with whether... Probably, I mean, I remember Sue Taylor saying that essentially, thematically, it's got to be something that interests you at that point in your life, one way or another. Um, and I know there's certain certain genres that don't work for me or, or I'm not that intrigued by and other people would be much better doing them than me. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, an optimal kind of approach for me, um, we're pretty genre agnostic in what you know I've produced and what Goldpost has produced. Um, I've done kids television from Leonard to you know the Invisible Man to the Sapphires, all radically different projects. Um, so I don't necessarily get overtly attracted by one genre, although a bit like Tanya, there are certain things that I'm not interested in. I'm not interested in, you know, doing anything which is, you know, about abusive women or, um, although I should say we did an invisible man, but that's a different take on it. But, you know, there's certain things that I don't want to touch because I, you know, um, it's not, I don't feel, yeah, uh, a connectivity to it. But, um, yeah, just to start with, I guess, um, an excitement. Um, and it's, it can be hard to define. It can be, I think for me it's about, is this a world or is this a story that I feel like I haven't seen before? Really interested in that. I don't, you know, I don't think most of the things that we do, um, we want to feel like I haven't seen a version of that on screen before. But within that, there has to be familiar uh, experiences 
um, and ways into it for people who, if you're not from that world, so you're kind of looking for, I'm personally looking for those dual things. What's a world that I haven't seen before, but the way I access it, I'm, I'm kind of either challenged emotionally or there's a familiarity emotionally within it, either thematically or emotionally. So they're the two things that I guess kind of excite me. And it's, it's so hard to kind of define what it is. Um, you just kind of know it again it comes back to that idea that i was talking about like with directors and relationships you just kind of know it when you read it mm. um but i think also you know like tanya when i whenever i read something or when we read something we're immediately going how would i finance this what's the pathway to the market and can i see a way to do it because if i can't if it's kind of like i love this but i genuinely can't see any way to do it we probably won't do it um, because otherwise it just will forever remain a great idea. So you're kind of tracking it through right to the end. How would I raise development money? You know, if there is a director attached, do I feel like this is a director that I will be able to raise money on for a film? Or if it's a writer, do they have um, the experience to kind of take charge of a TV series, which is an enormous pressure on, on a lead writer? So all those kind of practical things, mm. um, we're kind of assessing at the same time once you kind of have that that um, personal connectivity with an idea and with the script. Yeah, and you both sort of mentioned instinct a little as well. You both sort of said, well, there's just a feeling you just kind of know that you're drawn to something. So that's really interesting as well. I mean, do you yeah. mind if I ask Kylie a question? Sure. <laughs> How do you find new directors? How do I find new directors? Um... Look, at the moment, I must admit, I've, I'm feeling a little bit slack in that department. <laughs> um, possibly because the last number of projects I've done have all been with directors that I've either worked with before. Um, and I guess because of the projects that I've been doing in the last few years um, have kind of demanded a certain level of experience of director. Um, so I feel I do feel like there is, um, yeah. I, 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 you know, I admit this, and I talk to this all the all the time about, you know, just out of being able to continually interact with short films and things like that. Um, I find I'm time challenged to do that at the moment. I would like to be able to do that more because I think that's really where I used to find and and discover new directors was through short films and things like that. Um, otherwise, it's. I guess, um, recommends of people, you know, sometimes come through. Like certainly we have projects where someone has said to me, have you seen this director? And I've gone, oh my God, no, I haven't. And then you go in and you, and you kind of look at that. But it does, um, it, it's, you know, that kind of discovery of new talent um, whilst you're in the maelstrom of kind of developing and producing and production is the thing that you have to kind of really keep in check that you don't, ignore as a project. And I think that's really interesting for emerging directors too, because decoding that really is how can they get the attention of people who they can then encourage to get our attention? Yeah. How can they be presenting the work that they've created to us, acknowledging the fact that we're kind of ridiculously time poor? Um, because you're right, I think both you and I are probably a little bit more old school in the sense of loving short films. Um, and, and certainly I've found that a way. So, for example, 
you know, Nick Verso obviously had um, a very successful or has had a very successful career well and truly outside of me, but I enjoy, I remember deliberately tracking the winners of the now Actor Awards, possibly then the AFI Awards short films. And in fact, that's something I have found myself doing in the last couple of days was just actually going, you know what, my brain needs a rest for a minute. Um, let's go and have a look at some of the short films that are there on Actor TV to try and just see who's out there. Um, also, yeah, just to re-energise myself a bit as well. Um, and that's where I first saw Nick Verso's short film, um, There's Something About Richard, if I remember. But it was then his agent who actually contacted me um, when I was ridiculously when we were in Cannes, which normally is the place where you don't have those meetings necessarily, and it worked out again. It was the perfect time to have that meeting um, because we were just, I was having a break between meetings and we had a glass of wine and we sat down and we got on like a house on fire. And it's now fast forward, you know, many years and also, you know, feature films and many series that Nick's done, but that resulted in me then not only um, uh, knowing of him and recommending him and partnering with my producing team on Itch to appoint him to that series as a, a director and then working with him then, um, but also now working on in development on Invisible Boys together. So, yeah, I think, I think if you're an emerging director, you really do need to try and get into festivals, try and get into awards, but also for the producers that you're targeting, do try and send your work to them by email and don't get, don't get disenchanted if you don't get an immediate reaction or so on, just keep trying, whether it's through women film and TV or game changers or mutual mates or whatever. We just really do like trying to get to see your work. Yeah, and I think it's definitely, without a doubt, challenging in this year because kind of events are not happening. So that there's opportunities where you would, there would be industry drinks are kind of, you know, often the place that we, where you would meet someone. Um, I mean, I certainly also, I should say, you know, I do rely a lot on our development executive, our development producer, Sarah Christie, who um, knows a lot of, and, and is keeping an eye on a lot of young filmmakers and new, and new talent as well. So um, certainly that is something that um, we rely on a lot. I rely on a lot and I kind of, she's got great taste and she will often say, this person is a really interesting, you know, new voice and that she will direct us to have a look at that person's work. The other thing, though, I'll just say, just picking up on what you said about email people, I want to shout from the roof, stop emailing people. <laughs> we get too many emails, you know, hundreds of emails a day. Pick up the phone. I keep saying, people, pick up the phone. Let's go back to picking up the phone and just ringing people and saying, hi, can I have a chat? It's so much nicer <laughs> um, <laughs> as an introduction if it's not coming through an agent or anything like that. Um, particularly in this in this period where we, we don't have those abilities to meet in person, you know. Um, and I know that can sometimes be, you know, feel like a bit more challenging to, you know, making a phone call and am I going to get through to Tanya or am I going to get through to Kylie? But you'll get through to someone and, you know, and it's just, um, I think there is, I certainly find that there's just this kind of avalanche of emails all the time and it really takes that, personal connection out of the equation when you're getting cold pictures via emails. So that would be my tip of how you connect with, with producers. 
It's really interesting. I think a lot of people would be afraid to pick up the phone um, because people assume, rightly so, that you're incredibly busy and the the last thing they want to do is, you know, annoy you kind of thing. So they just think if I send an email, but um, that's quite interesting. That's encouraging to hear. Um, it is really nice to meet people, you know, and this year there's been a lack of being able to go to festivals either in Australia or internationally and go to those conferences and, and meet people at the bar afterwards. And um, yeah, it's it's greatly suffered for us, the, the networking opportunities this year. Um, and Tanya, what you said is very encouraging as well. Because, um, you know, I feel like with um, a lot of funding bodies, for example, and, and in and other realms, like people are really getting pushed into uh, being encouraged to do uh, web series and pushed into, you know, heading towards television. And it's nice to know that producers are still looking at short films because they really are how filmmakers practice their craft and get better at their craft and, and prepare for making a feature. And, and that's certainly the the track that I'm on. So um, that's very encouraging to hear. I have to say that I'm not sure I'm... Look, I, I hate to say I think I'm starting to become a bit of a dinosaur as well, though, because I do believe that I'm in a transition period from short films to web series to some extent, and I'm also mm-hmm. in a transition period from the dream of feature films across into um, streaming-length versions and or TV. So I'm a little concerned that I don't naturally, I don't naturally go to web series, but there's all an immense wave of talent that's been mm. identified and and picked up through that and practicing their craft. Um, and so I'm just constantly having to check myself and say I still feel a little bit that I'm old school. Um, I don't watch web series as much as others do. Um, and I think that is a way, again, to practice your craft and to get noticed. Yeah, absolutely. I just feel like as well there are a lot of um, directors, younger directors who are also a little bit old school and still want to make films. And it's nice to know that um, there's still those avenues and there are still some producers willing to look at that as well. I think that's I mean, I don't good. know, how are you feeling about about the context at the moment with features. I mean, in the past, the world's in transition. We have a big challenge in Australia um, compared to some places around the world, which I think is a positive one, um, which is that we actually pay award rates to people. So fundamentally, um, the cost of making a feature film in Australia is very, very different to making it non-union in the States or elsewhere in the world. But that means that other than sort of, or even including films funded outside the system of funding agencies and not on award wages um, with either reinvestment or people not being paid properly in Australia. There's probably a total over the last numerous years, there's probably a total of around about 40 films a year that are made, Kylie, would you say, of which something like, are we up to 18 yet that would be done through... Screen Australia and um, other funding agencies. I mean, it really is kind of a challenging and and wonderful but crazy path for people to be thinking only of feature films. I would be I would be targeting becoming a director in kids TV series, you know, and use your pathway that way and impress people and learn your craft skill. Or in other longer running series, you know, the people have had opportunities working on the Heights over here in WA, thirty half hours over two series. So 60 half hours, you know, that's that to me seems a lot more likely to be able to get in in many ways than it is 
this Olympic kind of struggle to get one of your films to be a feature. <laughs> yeah, it, it's certainly, um, I think, with the recent announcement about the reduction of the offset to 30% as of next year, it, it is, I feel, troubling times for films and, and kind of looking at the theatrical landscape in Australia and, you know, how many um, theatrical distributors are no longer operating, even the last couple of years, um, is troubling without a doubt, you know. Hopefully within that there'll be some shift in some of the streamers doing and commissioning films on, you know, feature films but made for streamers here, but we're yet to see the first lot of that coming through, although I think that's not far off. Um, but it, it has, you know, certainly for us, I mean, even, you know, the last, uh, before this announcement, the last few years, we've really had to look very closely. We, you know, we, as a company, we have always done film and television. We've done it for 20 years. And the balance each year was a little bit different, but we always managed to do both. Um, certainly in the last few years, we've had to be really narrow down the kind of films that we're going to put our time into developing. Um, because of this kind of shrinking landscape. And I think even more so now with the reduction of 30%, we have to do that even more until we start to see some real movement in streamers actually doing feature films for the streaming services. And that hasn't quite happened yet. So, um, yeah, I, it's, I, look, I don't think feature films are ever gonna go away, but, it is a changing landscape and the kind of films that we would pick up five years ago as a company, we can no longer afford to develop them um, because I can't, that what we were talking about before of going, where's the pathway to market doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's going to be an interesting couple of years, I think, for film to kind of find its new balance and actually see what kind of films are starting to come through the system and what kind of films can kind of still get theatrical distribution of the few that remain in the theatrical landscape. Um, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a little bit worrying, I must say. But yeah. we've had tough times before. I remember, you know, Tanya, you probably remember this as well. Kind of 15 years ago, there was a period where all the commercial broadcasters thought that doing TV drama was the worst thing ever and none of them wanted to do it. And we were all staring down the barrel of going, oh, my God, television drama is over. It was kind of when MasterChef first started. And it was frightening to think that those days were over. And then it was a moment and it passed and then got back into it and realised that people really want to watch television drama. So there are blips. <laughs> um, we're just kind of in quite a big blip. I guess, because of 2020 and there's a lot of stuff that's impacting um, the business model um, at, mm. at the heart. And just talking about the, with the producers offset and everything, we're, we're speaking very much in Australian terms. Um, Kylie, you've worked on both Australian and US productions. Um, have you ever considered moving over to LA and establishing an arm over there? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Right, next question. Okay. <laughs> uh, certainly not now. <laughs> not next no, week. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, no, it's not It's not ever been. I mean, I think we have always, everything that we've always produced has always had a, 
an international component to it anyway. And mm. the international relationships have always been, and partnerships um, have always been part of everything that we've done. And we've managed to do that still from Australia. You know, that said, you know, prior to 2020, Rosemary and I, between us, would be overseas six times a year, you know, regular trips, you know, um, because you have to do that if you're working and financing films at a certain budget level. So um, there's never really been uh, for us a kind of a need or a want to necessarily um, have, a, have a home base. And I think then, to, you know, those kind of more um, internationally focused or American focused projects that we've done, you know, um, you know, obviously with Lee Winnell, with both Upgrade and with Invisible Man, I mean, they're very much driven by the relationship, you know, with Lee as a director um, and also that relationship with Blumhouse. We can do that in Australia. Um, so the mountain is coming to us um, for those kind of key projects. And, you know, we, we have more of those. And, again, but they're, they're still about that kind of key creative relationship with the director and your interest in the in the script driving it, not because there's a whole lot of Americans um, wanting to come here and shoot, of which is happening enormously at the moment um, mm -hmm. everywhere in Australia. You know, it's a huge part of of kind of um, what what we're kind of grappling with at the moment is domestic is domestic producers of this influx of a lot of large American projects. Um, so, yeah, that's a long-winded answer to no, I do not want to move to L.A. <laughs> um, I want to talk a little bit about gender. Uh, women are still incredibly underrepresented in key creative roles in the industry, and yet um, some funding bodies have made the decision to remove women from the diversity stream. Tanya, I know you've done some fantastic work with the Gender Matters Task Force, uh, as two women working in the industry at an executive level, how far do you think we've come in relation to gender parity and how far do we have to go? Oh, it's a big question and it's an important one. Um, I think we have seen in, um, uh, we've seen in Australia that there's been some significant changes over the last, say, three to five years in particular. Um, if you look at the projects that are funded by Screen Australia and the funding agencies, Pretty much now across um, most of the areas, there's actually a, a significant improvement in gender parity. The one area that's challenging remains feature films and feature film directors in particular. Yeah. Um, and then beyond that, which is much more important, is looking at the industry as a whole, looking at the notion of um, looking at right across the industry in key creative positions such as writer, producer, director, there is still a substantial issue. Now that I haven't managed to yet get the research detail on, but what's clear is that that would include all of the, um, uh, all of the reality TV type of content, all of the other areas of, of um, screen content that's not funded in the traditional children's drama, um, documentary, factual, you know, or documentary um, TV, one-time TV and features area. So there's there's something going on in all of those other areas outside of those and outside of those funding agencies that is deeply disturbing because we're not actually getting people through the ranks. Um, as importantly, heads of department are not actually um, in most areas being 
represented sufficiently by women. And again, we all know the reality that if you've got a team of people and you're actually managing people, you tend to choose people with whom you've had some experience before or who've been recommended by others through having had some form of experience. And the more that we have um, people who are not the, the head of those um, departments and units that are you know, male, the more that, and, and from particular cultural background, the more we're going to find this lack of diversity occurring, unfortunately. So it's something we have to be very, very aware of. And that's an area I'd like to see change. On a more of a macro level, gosh, I remember it must be now nine years ago or so almost that I left Screen New South Wales and gave a talk at the producers conference talking about, I think it was, you know, the, 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 the R word, the C word, the F word, and the, I can't remember what the other one was. Um, but basically, at that time, I looked at the publicly listed media companies in Australia, as well as all of the broadcasters, um, including ABC and SBS. And the number of those that had a female chair was, I think, at the time, zero. Um, and um, certainly, if you look at the chairs and CEOs or managing directors of all of these major media bodies across Australia, we still have a major issue there. So I think um, there's a great deal still to be done. Beyond that, the issue of diversity is absolutely paramount at the moment. And there is a big question about looking at traditional sort of gender delineation rather than looking at a world where people identify differently, but certainly in the context of diversity, there's so much more to be done. Um, essentially, what we need to do is to try and find ways of identifying talent wherever that may lie and try and support that talent over the many years it takes to support to develop it. Um, it's not a short-term fix and it's also about basically allowing people to tell their own stories surrounded by people but also with respect back in the context of the skill sets that we've had to develop for decades to be able to do what we do to work alongside them. Yeah, I mean, I still think that women have to be part of the diversity question, without a doubt. Um, I think it's um, a misstep to take, uh, to, to, to think that that has been evened out and that we're okay. Um, it's, it's, it's a tricky thing to do, though, because I think, you know, if you look at directors and if... So there's kind of... Um, we have a lot of, you know, I'm talking particularly in television, a lot of really amazing female directors, most of whom which have been uh, working consistently overseas now. And because the opportunities are there to do bigger projects. Um, and, you know, so where are the next lot of those women coming up, you know? That's you know, and and it's and it's a tricky thing because as 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 you said, Tanya, it's um, when you're looking for opportunities and you're trying to give those opportunities to train people up and give them those chances, you know, because we in television we don't do these long run shows anymore. We're doing all these really short run shows, so the training ground, the genuine training grounds, have disappeared. Um, you know, I remember when I did Lockie Leonard we were commissioned for 26 episodes. So I got the opportunity, you know, it was where Wayne Blair got his first television directing experience out of doing short films. They don't exist anymore. Um, so there is this incredible pressure on the market and the level of shows 
still demand a certain level of experience at the helm and there's still that balance as producers that you have to feel confident that someone is ready to to be the master as a as a director coupled with how do you give those opportunities when you're talking four episodes or six episodes and those training ground opportunities are not there that like they used to be so it's a it's a very challenging balancing act i think and and certainly you know we always talk about we've always spoken about the kind of the talent drain back to the states because those opportunities exist mm-hmm. um and seeing a lot of you know incredibly talented women i'm just talking women particularly at the moment but also you know a lot of diverse actors i know who'd moved to the states long ago because there weren't opportunities here for them in the way that there were in the states um and then they're really hard to get back um and to, to come and work with us again so it is it's it's an ongoing issue and i think you just have to keep looking at every time you start a production and you crew up you have to kind of look around you and go who have we got and how can we find opportunities how can we balance it out a little bit whilst also still i do think it's important that you allow a certain level of retainment of creative relationships that already exist amongst directors and and their HODs. So it's it's a it's a challenging balancing act. I mean I guess the main thing I'd say is we just cannot take women off off the radar in terms of um, needing to, to for them to have a genuine seat at the table because it's not even still. Yeah, I agree. Um, just on the on the diversity path, um, the screen uh, there's been a great push in Australia towards indigenous storytelling. Uh, which includes a call for Indigenous writers to retain IP. Uh, the current system isn't really built for writers to retain IP. Um, at the most, if they're directing, maybe they can get 1%. Um, how does this affect the producer's role and their ownership of a project which they traditionally need in order to um, to have the rights to exploit it and sell it on? Yeah, I mean, I think... Um we have a lot of incredibly talented Indigenous filmmakers because there was a genuine, well-supported development system put in place in the early days of the AFC under, you know, particularly under when Sally Riley was there, that gave um, proper training, support, creative control to the Warwick Thorntons and the Wayne Blairs and the list goes on, you know, that, that have meant that all those people have genuine fantastic careers today. I must admit, I hadn't heard about the um, the push for retaining um, IP on scripts. I don't quite know how that would work from a financing point of view. It's very tricky because obviously as a producer, when you're raising funds, you've got to own the copyright to get the funds from investors. Now, I think maybe if you're doing projects that have a hundred percent kind of government support, there might be a way to look at that, but it, it would seem to me to be a challenging remit when you're talking about bringing the market in who expect in a lot of cases for producers to kind of, um, because they're handing their money to the producers effectively, the, the producers do have a certain level of um, final control. And I don't just mean creative control. I'm just kind of, you know, um, they are liable you know, to those investors, whether they're theatrical distributors or Netflix or the broadcaster. And if you took the IP of a script out of there, it's, uh, Tanya, with your legal hat on, it's, it's a, yeah, it's I a think, puzzle I think to me. I don't know how that works. IP in the script with actually the issue of 
of um, intellectual cultural um, property rights through um, Indigenous ISIP kind of protocols that the industry has developed. So it's not necessarily so much the script. It becomes a bit. It becomes a question, I suppose, of because that also doesn't control the revenue stream or or the rights of what you could do with it. There's contractual uh, restrictions or or connections that that control that above those rights, really, as well. But essentially, there are new models that have been developed. I think, for example, Kylie, I don't know a lot about them, but with Mystery Road, for example. Um, and I'm not sure about the situation of Clever Man or others, but with Mystery Road, I know that there was a relationship with the actual, whether it was the copyright and ownership in the final series or whether it's the actual sharing of the revenue stream or otherwise um, on the back end where um, First Nations people were involved in possibly the, the production company and entity that was established to actually make the film or so and then revenue streams coming from that. It was a different type of relationship, as, as I gather, um, on that one. So certainly there, it is a very interesting dilemma at the moment where, again, looking at diversity, where people are saying, these are our stories, they're culturally something that we believe we need to have control of. But the reality is that, as Kyle has explained, when we finance these projects and when we're talking millions of dollars that people are putting up, against those, there's, there's a certain chain of title pathway of rights that need to be entered into um, that need to enable the project to then generate the revenue without encumbrance, and that makes it quite challenging. So again, and also to some extent, I have to say again that I feel that there's not necessarily an understanding on many people's part of the role of the producer and the role of the production company. Um, you know, right through development and then for those, as I said, at least sort of seven years or more after the project's actually been delivered, not even just made, um, where we are actually as production companies and producers personally responsible for this in a way that sometimes the people who originally came up with the idea or the directors aren't and get to go on to their next project. You know, we were talking about this the other day with somebody and saying, oh, my God, I'd love to be able to go, I've finished you know, finish the edit or finish, you know, the delivery of the project and walk away. <laughs> no, I can't even imagine it, Kylie. I'd love to get paid along the way as a producer in development for the project that I've been on since 2016 in the way that some of the other key creators have been paid. But ultimately, hopefully, it will sort itself out in the, in the long run. Um, but, yes, it's a, it, it is a challenging context at the moment because I also deeply understand the notion that there are certain stories that must be protected and there are moral rights around those stories and it's not something where that can be taken away from a community or from a group of people. Yeah, and I, I, so I think it's about how you look at um, incentivising, you know, what, what does it look like in the back end and things like that. How do people have a back to that idea of how do, how do creators have a genuine seat at the table and share in the, the success the show you know um i mean i think there is um you know i say this a lot and uh <laughs> that i think there is an assumption genuine assumption out there that most australian producers are doing it really well that we all earn a lot of money and and that we we kind of you know 
spend the budget on ourselves and you know whereas the majority of Australian producers that I know whether they're working in film or television reinvest fees reinvest overheads more often than not earn less per week than the HODs that you employ and then more often than not because of the length of time that you have to be on a project um, you know, would probably earn less than the runner, you know, on the life of looking after something. So, you know, I guess it kind of comes back to what you're saying, Tanya, is, you know, and it's, it's, it, I do think it's, it's a challenging thing because I do think the industry, we're quite closed door because a lot of what we do with financing is confidential information. Um, so we can't widely necessarily share how we put deals together with everyone because the people that we put deals together with expect that those deals are confidential. But if you kind of peel away the layers and have a, and, and, and the people really understood how those things worked, they would probably get a better understanding that, that producers, particularly independent producers who are not owned by studios or, you know, um, do it fiscally tough in this market because it is a very, very small market, even really successful ones. Um, and maybe that can take the heat sometimes out of this, this assumption that, that something does really well and we're all earning millions of dollars at the back end, which we're not. But I do think, um, you know, it is looking about, um, yeah, how you incentivize those creatives who are with you for the long haul and can sit more, you know, comfortably beside you whilst acknowledging, as Tanya said, most people then go on to the next job and we are looking after something for years. And certainly, you know, the more projects you produce, you have to have full-time staff to just service the, 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 the ongoing life of a project. So it's not something that you can do on your own. It's, it's a genuine cost that comes with properly looking after projects, both as things roll out in different markets, as things need continually reporting, um, you have to have people and help and staff to do that because it's a lot of work um, for the life of a show or a film, particularly if, if they've had some level of success. Um, and that's kind of, you know, um, it, it costs money to do that and, and you have to have resources to do that as a producer. Yep. We're going to um, round off with talking a little bit about resilience and creating opportunity out of crisis. Um, I'm wondering how you've both handled things in COVID times and if you've been able to actually create opportunities out of this time that you wouldn't have had otherwise. Oh, that's a, a ripper question. So, so I did um, a couple of things um, at the outset. Partly I went, I started, um, again, as Kylie says, many producers are doing it tough. Well, I went and was, I've been teaching at one of the unis again, and many of us do that. So I've been teaching out at the Screen Academy at, at Edith Cowan University. And that's been kind of really, that, that, has, that has helped my soul immensely because I'm connecting with the next wave of talent. And I've been able to share things and it's been very much a two-way mentorship experience where I've been learning from them and I've been fueled by them and hopefully I'm doing the same back and creating new relationships for the future. So that's been fantastic. I also decided to sort of open myself up a little bit to some opportunities and start saying yes to a few things that I you know, may not have otherwise done. And so I ended up being involved in initially a... 
um, what's become a documentation of a dance workshop about um, Julia Gillard and misogyny speech and her, <laughs> an experience of women in power. And so that was really quite exciting and that's got a really interesting future both. So sort of moving across into some of the areas that aren't strictly screened that are across different media and genre in the arts. And kind of unusually off that came this opportunity or, or maybe not off that, came this opportunity to actually make five uh, filmed performances um, for the opening of the brand new WA Museum Ulabadik. Um, and so I've been working in the last few weeks, can't wait to show you both, um, on these, well, it'll be out on the on, you know, worldwide streaming soon, from hopefully the 21st of November. But I've had the chance in this crazy short time to put together with a team of people and with two fantastic directors, Renee Webster and um, David Vincent-Smith and their DOPs, to do one which was a solo dance performance that was improvised contemporary, one which was um, a major, major band that I can't think about yet, and um, a young woman musician who's collaborating with them, plus five strings, doing a, a really well-known piece. Another one which was 12 strings from the Birds of the Orchestra. Another one which was eight dancers who are working with Strut. And another which was an Indigenous music theatre piece. And um, that has been quite exhilarating. So meanwhile, back at the ranch, I've been developing projects and hopefully we'll have some good news on a big project very soon. But um, that's kind of kept me out of trouble. It's wonderful. <laughs> Sounds fantastic. Makes me feel decidedly boring with what I've been doing. <laughs> After the shock of homeschooling for two months, um, I mean, I think um, really this year, I mean, I'm in Melbourne at the moment about to start shooting a series. Um, so a lot of my year has been, um, the series was meant to start in February. So a lot of my year has actually been spent trying to work out how and when to get this going again. Um, but I think really, you know, what we've done is just to kind of buckle down and concentrate on development, which has been really nice because normally with development, you're always doing it amongst all the other things that you're doing and production and, you know, there's never quite enough time to really concentrate and um, uh, just think about development. So we have had about, um, wow, 10 Zoom story workshops and, have, and just make these kind of leaps and bounds with all of our slate, uh, particularly on the television side, which has been really great, which I just don't think we would have been able to do otherwise because of just time poorness, really. Um, and so that's really exciting. And I think that's, you know, that's, that's kind of the, the, the opportunity that, that, you know, 2020 allowed us to do was just think development. And, and progress these projects. But um, now all I think about is COVID protocols and how to shoot <laughs> under what is a, uh, must say, immensely um, more complicated uh, and challenging uh, set of rules. Um, um, but yeah, next week we will push the, push the boat out and, uh, and start and see how that goes. Fantastic, all very positive stuff. Well, good luck to both of you on those projects. Tanya Chambers, Kylie Dufresne, thank you so much for joining me on The Lounge. Pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. 
The Lounge is brought to you by Sky Woman Productions in Australia. Produced by Travis Curry at Curry Media in Canada. Subscribe on YouTube, Twitch, or wherever you find your podcasts. And watch us live via the Amina Hughes pages on Facebook or Twitter. I would like to extend a big thank you to my very special guests and to all of you beautiful people for watching or listening. Thank you for joining me on The Lounge.